ಸಹನಾವತು ಸಹನೌ ಭುನಕ್ತು ಸಹ ವೀರ್ಯಂ ಕರವಾವಹೈ ತೇಜಸ್ವಿನಾವಧೀತಮಸ್ತು ಮಾವಿದ್ಭಿಷಾವಹೈ ಓಂ ಶಾಂತಿ 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 ಓಂ ಮೇ ದ ಲಾರ್ಡ್ ಪ್ರೊಟೆಕ್ಟ್ ಅಸ್ ಬೋತ್ ಟೀಚರ್ ಅಂಡ್ ಟಾಟ್ ಟುಗೆದರ್ ಮೇ ದ ಲಾರ್ಡ್ ಗಿವ್ ಅಸ್ ಬೋತ್ ದ ರಿಸಲ್ಟ್ಸ್ ಆಫ್ ದಿಸ್ ಸ್ಟಡಿ may the lord make our study illuminating may we attain bigger together may we not cavil at each other om peace 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 so we have been studying the kathopanishad and we have made some progress we have actually completed the um the second section so kathopanishad has two chapters each chapter has three sections called vallis so we have completed the, in the first chapter we have completed the first section first valli and the second section second valli now we are about to start the third section in the first section we were um, told about we were introduced to the story the little boy nachiketa goes to the house of death yama and asks his questions and that's the context the main com- uh thing that we introduced to was the third question of nachiketa uh, the mystery of death what are we really which he rephrased later on we saw in the um, second section that he rephrased the same question more precisely that reality within us which is beyond body beyond mind beyond duality beyond karma uh, beyond dharma and adharma tell me about that reality the real nature of the atman so that's the question it's a question which introduces vedanta and then Uh, we saw how the teacher first tested nachiketa to see whether he has the requisite qualifications whether this knowledge will at all lead him to enlightenment will it do him any good at all so after testing and finding the little boy to be completely qualified then uh, he tells him about the preliminary um, qualifications of what we later systematize as the fourfold qualifications in vedanta but in a more general discussion we find about that and then he starts teaching nachiketa about the nature of the self about the atman and that's what we saw in the second section now the third section will start again with the same topic the uh, nature of the self what will happen here is there's a very um, a very elegant powerful teaching about the nature of the self here uh, what is enlightenment how can we get enlightenment the method and the result of enlightenment the result of this study and the result of the enlightenment which we will get from this study those will now be discussed in the third section of the first chapter so what is enlightenment what do you mean by self knowledge and then um, how do you get that enlightenment and this really the unique thing about vedanta it is not that uh, the way the sadhana the practice when it's the moment when you say practice and religion you bring them together we immediately tend to think oh certain kinds of rituals you know you perform this puja this kind of offerings with flowers and incense or something like that chant these mantras rituals no the method here is not a is rich ritual it's not karma ritualistic karma or other karma doing good deeds is that what is going to be taught no it's not doing good deeds either of course not doing bad deeds either then is it um, belief in a deity belief in god faith in god surrender to god and uh, waiting for the grace of god no not even that it's not bhakti it's not devotion which is going to is the method all right is it meditation you sit quietly and withdraw from the external world withdraw from the experience of the body mind and then you find discover something no not even uh, some kind of extraordinary experience gained through meditation not even dhyana so the method which will be taught by yama the method of vedanta is not karma ritual action it's not bhakti devotion faith it's not meditation calming and focusing the mind no what is it then it's not karma it's not bhakti it's not dhyana it is vichara inquiry 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 into what inquiry into our experience 
And he will show us step by step by inquiring into what we are already experiencing, what we are experiencing all the time. He will point out something to us. Yama, the teacher, the Vedanta teacher, is going to show us, is trying to show us something. And by that, if we, if we do get it, that getting it, that realizing it is called enlightenment. Our realizing this true nature, which is always available to us, open secret, but we don't see it. It has to be shown or pointed out to us. That is the method. And that method will be shown here uh, by the famous analogy of the chariot. Uh, so this is a well-known thing in the Upanishads, something that you find in other civilizations also. In uh, Greek philosophy also, the chariot example is given. So obviously chariot was common, and today it would be an SUV or something. But in those days, a chariot. So the chariot example you will find in this chapter, in this section. Also, you will find the famous uh, mantra, Uttishta Tajagrata Prapya Varan Nibodhata. Swami Vivekananda's famous exhortation, um, arise, awake, and stop not till the goal is reached. That is based upon, which draws upon uh, the mantra, which is found in this section of the Kathopanishad. So a beautiful section and powerful section, an elegant, tightly argued, um, with powerful pointer to our real nature. The essence of Vedantic inquiry will be given here. Yes, remember, Vedanta does not dispense with ritual or karma, does not dispense with devotion. It does not dispense with, it does not, it does not uh, uh, tell you to avoid meditation. Meditation is helpful, devotion is helpful, um, karma is helpful, but only helpful. They are marginal. The core, what is, what is actually Vedanta, is what is going to be presented here in this um, section. All right. Now let us start. The first mantra, it introduces us to the nature of the self as consciousness of our real nature. What do we know about ourselves and what we really are? What do we know already? Everybody knows that and what we really are, what Vedanta wants to show us, both are introduced here. First mantra, Tritiyavali, the third section of the first chapter. Ritam pivanto sukritasya loke guham pravrishto parame paradhe Chaya tapo brahma vido vadanti panchagnayo yecha trinachiketa. So, what is being said here? These two, which two? The supreme self and individual self have entered into the cave of the mind, into the cave of the heart, and they experience the results of karma. This is in a very poetic language. Instead of saying results of karma are experienced, it is saying ritam pivanto. They drink uh, the, um, the truth. They drink the reality. What is reality here? The results of our karma, because they are certain. It is said, there's an old, old ancient saying that nabhuktam kshiyate karma janma shatakoti bhirapi. Without experience, without giving their results, without paying for our karma, those karmas will not be exhausted even in a million births. We have to experience it. Oh, so the enlightened one, you know, well, the enlightened one, all future karmas will be destroyed, what is not yet activated. But what has been activated in this body, that will be experienced even by the enlightened one. Only the enlightened one is not affected by it. We are affected by it. But anyway, whatever it is, it's a hard truth. There is a greater truth than karma, but there is a hard truth. That's why it is called truth. Drinking the truth. What is this truth? Sukritasya. Uh, Sukrita, here in this context, it means Swayamkrita. That means what has been done by oneself. That which we have done in past lives, the, the web which we have spun in past lives, in that we are now dwelling, we are trapped in that. The cocoon which we have spun around ourselves. Lifetime after lifetime. That's where what we find ourselves in. And experiencing that. Uh, where? Where? Loke. Literally it means in the world. But it actually here it means in the body. In this body. Uh, in this body, experiencing the results of our past deeds and misdeeds. Uh, results like pleasure and pain. Uh, who? 
two there are two who have entered into this cave of the heart in the the sacred space of brahman parame paradit in the transcendent space of brahman in the supreme space within the cave of the heart that means in our minds within our conscious experience there are two what are the two we'll see and these two chaya tapo they are very different from each other one is like darkness the other one is like light one is blazing forth with light the other one is like shadow like shadow and light these two very different but they are within us that constitutes what we are actually who speaks of this of course the teachers of the upanishads brahmavida the knowers of brahman the enlightened ones you know, the teachers of brahman they speak of it but also so do the ritualists those who perform the rituals of the five fires or the three nachiketa fire who have performed nachiketa uh, sacrifice three times you remember this phrase was the particular sacrifice was taught by uh, yama to nachiketa a particular ritual and it was named in honor of nachiketa those who have performed it thrice in their lives or those who perform the five sac- uh, who perform rituals with the help of the five sacrificial fires this is just a code word a uh, kind of designation for the uh, vedic ritualists the vedic ritualists speak about this and those who are um, the teachers of the upanishads of vedanta they speak about this oh, so they are saying this we are just quoting this yeah my saying i'm quoting this so what has been said here um for this what i will do is i will go to another text the text is called the brahma sutras i uh, i have not referred much to it but it is a very very important text of vedanta advaita vedanta is based on three three texts one is a group of texts called the upanishads which we are reading so that's primary the foundation of vedanta is upanishads but the practical teachings of the upanishads have been collected choices teachings and given in a practical form in the bhagavad gita so the bhagavad gita is another uh, basis of the upanishad uh, of vedanta but the third one which i have rarely referred to only once in a while is called the brahma sutras the aphorisms of brahman aphorisms of the supreme reality one of my friends swami narsimhananda he called it the god sutras <laughs> so what are those sutras they are very short um, statements very compact and you have to they are like what do you call zip files in in computers you know if you expand them then it lot of things will come out of it but it looks tiny uh seed like and um a whole wealth of knowledge is packed into each of those sutras the reason it was put in that way is because it's compact i suppose it was easy to memorize as a notation to keep in mind the whole knowledge system packed into these cryptic sayings um so each of the philosophies traditional philosophies in india had their own sutra system sutra text so the nyaya system has the nyaya sutras composed by the sage gotama the vaisheshika system had its vaisheshika philosophy has its vaisheshika sutras composed by the sage kanada kanada uh, literally means one who eats atoms <laughs> they were the first to to devise a term for atoms really kana means atom anu atom so kanada then the sankhya the sage kapila is said to have composed the sankhya sutras the original ones are lost now but uh, but it was there then the well known sutras of patanjali which are pretty famous because yoga is of course very famous so yoga is actually based on the sutras of patanjali yoga sutras and then there is there are the jainini sutras which deal with the ritualistic portion of the vedas the, the that portion which precedes all these upanishads we are doing which is the bulk of the vedas actually those that has been systematized into a, a set of sutras by the sage jaimini but to our purpose what we are interested in is vedanta so the knowledge of vedanta the philosophy of vedanta has been systematized in 555 sutras 555 as aphorisms they are called the vedanta sutras also known as brahma sutras the sutras sutra means aphorism the aphorisms sutras of brahman or of vedanta what do they do they take up different issues which emerge out of the study of vedanta when you study upanishads 
then questions arise. And these uh, sutras take up these individual questions and, and try to answer them. And to understand the sutras, it's very cryptic. So what does it mean? You will have to go to the commentary on the sutras. All these sutras, Nyaya Sutra, Shabha, Yoga Sutra, all of them, they have extensive commentaries and sub-commentaries and sub-sub-commentaries explaining every word in detail and considering alternative interpretations, arguments for and against and so on. All of that is involved in the study of the Brahma Sutras. And that seems to be a huge undertaking. But normally, uh, when you become a monk in the Vedanta tradition, you are expected to study the Brahma Sutra, just the first four sutras in our tradition makes it much easier, a shortcut. The first four sutras sort of give you a foundation of Vedanta philosophy. That's why it's called Chatus Sutri, four sutras. Chatus Sutri literally means the fourth sutra. The first four sutras uh, with, first four sutras are very easily said, in, in, you can say it in one sentence, but uh, with the commentary, with the commentary of Shankaracharya. So monks will study that. Um, of course, we will study the Upanishads with the commentary, the Gita with the commentaries of Shankaracharya, and the first four sutras at least. If you can study the 555 sutras, great. But at least the first four sutras is compulsory before you become a monk. Um, why am I bringing up all this? It just so happens that one of the topics selected in the Brahma Sutras for discussion who wrote the Brahma Sutras? Vyasa, the great sage Vyasa. So, our full name, Badarayana Vyasa. So one of the sutras takes up this particular mantra from the Katha Upanishad, which we are going to study today. That particular mantra is taken up by one of the sutras in the Brahma Sutras and the commentator Shankaracharya discusses it in detail. Um, what I'm going to say is drawn from the commentary of Shankaracharya on this mantra and commentary of Shankaracharya on that sutra from the Brahma Sutras. So to give you an example, what does, we just heard the mantra uh, just now. Now let's look at the sutra, which is uh, from the Brahma Sutras. This is the beautiful English translation. This is the Sanskrit original. You can see it's very densely written Sanskrit. Now, if you translate it into English, it becomes much more voluminous. Uh, by, it was translated by Swami Gambhiranandaji. I remember this book very well because it was the first book I borrowed after becoming a monk. I went to the library after becoming a monk within three days and I look, looked for the biggest, shiniest book on Vedanta. I thought I have to master Vedanta, so I pulled it out. And then I was going to my room. A monk asked, because I was, in, I was this new boy in the, in the monastery, said, what are you studying? I said, Swami, I brought this Brahma Sutras. And he said, great, you won't understand a single word of it. I was so scared, I again went back to the library and put it back. Uh, it was only three years later when I went for our training in our training center in the main monastery in Belur, where this is studied. I studied it and I realized it's not all that frightening. All right. One day we will study it, at least the first four sutras. And the introduction to the Brahma Sutras by Adi Shankaracharya. He writes his commentary on the Brahma Sutras on all the 555 sutras. But he writes an essay of three, four pages introducing the whole Brahma Sutras and introducing all of Vedanta philosophy. That introduction is called Adhyasa Bhashyam. Um, commentary on the concept of superimposition. Where, which is basically, you have to get that to understand Advaita Vedanta. With that, Advaita Vedanta makes sense. And one philosopher once told me that the first sentence of that, of that introduction to the Brahma Sutra, commentary in the Brahma Sutra by Shankaracharya, that first sentence is the most profound sentence I have come across in all my studies of the sacred and philosophical texts of the East and the West. Professor J.N. Mahanti, he told me that. Anyway, so today we are not concerned with that. Today we are concerned with one of the sutras, which is the sutra number in this Brahma Sutra, this sutra number 1.2.11. First chapter, second section, 11th sutra. You don't have to bother about it. I'll just extract the essence of it and present it to you in English. But the sutra itself, it's nice to hear the sutra, uh, which considers this, this, this topic. 
गुहां प्रविष्ट आत्मनो आत्मानो ही तदर्शनात what does it mean if you literally translate it this is very short it means the two who have entered into the heart are the individual self and the supreme self but that is what is seen in other texts not very cryptic it's more or less explanatory all right i'll just present to you the essence of the discussion which goes on why am i presenting this to you it shows you how these interpretations which i keep giving to you is this mantra means this how did you come to these interpretations how did you arrive upon this final conclusion this is what it means this shows you um, the interpretation being built up it shows you the building under construction all right so what what, what does it um, what does this sutra tell you it says this mantra which we are studying it says two have entered into the space sacred space of the heart you know the transcendent space of brahman to have entered into the sacred space of the heart they drink the results of they experience the results of karma in this body they are entirely different like light and darkness and the you know teachers of vedanta and the ritualists they all speak about it now the question is what are these two what are we talking about because the mantra itself doesn't tell you that uh, these two are brahman and atman or paramatma jivatma supreme self and individual self it doesn't tell you that how do you get it so the question that is raised here is what are we talking about are we talking about consciousness and the intellect the two so when we look inside ourselves what most what's most obvious in our own experience what is at the core of our existence is mind and consciousness i am aware but i'm also aware of thoughts feelings perceptions and later senses and further than the body and then through the senses and the body and external world and other people but primarily when i look at my experience just now at any time when i look at my experience i am aware and aware of thoughts feelings emotions ideas memories desires so my primary experience of myself always is consciousness and mind so are these the two that you are talking about two have entered within us and who experience the results of karma basically experience life so are we talking about the individual self i will use the term jivatma jivatma means individual self are we talking about individual self and the intellect buddhi jivatma are we talking about these two or are we talking about the individual self jivatma and the supreme self paramatma jivatma here would mean i the consciousness in this body mind especially i the consciousness associated with this mind or this intellect in our terms which we have learned reflected consciousness consciousness reflected in this mind is this this one option the other option is the individual consciousness i and the unlimited consciousness brahman satchidananda are these the two which have entered into this sacred space within the heart or within our within this body mind so these are the two options now what is what are we going to discuss well um the very first it makes shankaracharya in his commentary i'm drawing all this from the commentary just a few observations the central ones he says well um it can't be really the intellect and the uh, jivatma the sen- the individual consciousness why uh, because it says the intellect the, the two experience the results of karma they experience life pleasure and pain but the intellect by itself cannot experience pleasure and pain it cannot experience anything only consciousness can experience only consciousness can experience anything the intellect by itself is not conscious it says it is jada jada means insentient the individual self has consciousness you are conscious and in your light with your presence intellect and mind function but by themselves intellect that is intellect mind memory these are not conscious they are part of the subtle body so they cannot experience anything by themselves but remember what does the mantra say 
the two are experiencing in this body uh, are you clear with the what is the question what is the point being raised here and it's such an important point 1400 years ago adi shankara is uh, shankaracharya is raising a point which is now at the cutting edge literally of consciousness studies this distinction between consciousness and mind consciousness and intellect this is not yet clear and speaking from a survey of all the um, you know writing on the philosophy of mind today from what was one of the papers i studied at harvard 2 years ago this primary distinction that the mind intellect in itself they are not conscious and to experience anything you need consciousness consciousness can experience you the conscious being can experience mind by itself cannot experience anything intellect by itself cannot experience anything and here the mantra says two are within us experiencing the results of karma why i'm saying that is this is not clear to many thinkers right now but this distinction is absolutely important right this neuroscientist dr anil set he is a very well known neuroscientist in england and he writes he writes and speaks about the problem of consciousness and he has written some books recently also so he put it very nicely he said you don't have to be smart to suffer so he says the computer deep blue can defeat a very intelligent person uh, you know in chess a chess grandmaster can be defeated by a computer computers have done that they have defeated chess grandmasters so in that sense a computer is smart now you have artificial intelligence and it can perform how do you know it's intelligent it can perform all the activities of intelligence by its by its behavior you can see it can go and beat a chess grandmaster that's smart it can take decisions it can guide a missile uh, smart weapons you know that's why you call them smart weapons it can guide the weapons it can take you know guide it can drive a self driving car or land a spacecraft on mars so it's really really smart in terms of behavior and performance but it doesn't suffer if uh, the grandmaster beats deep blue in a chess match deep blue doesn't feel depressed but if deep blue beats the grandmaster in a chess match the grandmaster is devastated that i've been beaten by a machine so a computer can be smart but anil said points out a mouse is not at all smart in that sense it can't play chess let alone defeat a grandmaster but it can suffer it feels pain when the cat catches the mouse the mouse you can see it feels pain it can suffer it can experience pain and presumably pleasure also to experience anything you need consciousness anil said i'm quoting 1400 years ago shankaracharya is saying that in a commentary you can't talk about intellect and consciousness here because intellect cannot experience anything it is consciousness you need consciousness to experience pain and pleasure this distinction is so important today we have machines which can duplicate every activity of our mind machines which have tremendous memory i mean your calculator has more memory than any human being can i mean at least you know the way to it is fast and can recover um, data so fast computers our little devices have more memory than us they have uh, decision making powers intelligence they have creativity nowadays uh, they are writing poems and music and making um, you know art so every function of the mind um, these machines are not duplicating except one they don't experience anything they don't have that first person conscious experience which we have so that first person conscious experience consciousness in sanskrit chetana that is the unique nature of the individual you or i or the mouse the individual sentient being jivatma in this case the individual sentient being that consciousness gives us the ability to have first person experience none of these machines even the smartest ones have any first person experience uh, 14 centuries ago shankaracharya makes that point you can duplicate you can have intelligence without sentience you can have memory without sentience you can have creativity all the things we thought only sentient beings can do all of that he says doesn't require sentience doesn't require consciousness you can have all of that 
without conscious experience. But conscious experience requires consciousness. Um, that first-person experience requires consciousness. So this distinction, uh, I just wanted to show that this was well understood in ancient times, this difference. Um, just as an aside here, this is where I think Advaita Vedanta Sankhya is very clear. And Kashmiri Shaivism confuses the issue here. In Kashmiri Shaivism, what happens is these powers of intellect, creativity, desire, all of these are powers of consciousness. You need consciousness plus these things. So thinking, understanding, remembering, desiring, all of these are vibrations of the play of consciousness. I had this discussion with Professor Rendam Chakravarti once, and I said, in that case, when a computer uh, you know, takes a decision, computer um, has memory, recalls memory and all of that, you would say it's not really memory, it's not really intelligence, it's not really creativity. None of these activities in the computer are real, according to Kashmiri Shaivism, because they all require consciousness. With Without consciousness, they are all imitations. And he said, yes, according to Kashmiri Shaivism, uh, artificial intelligence is artificial. It's not intelligence. Uh, because without consciousness, it can't be intelligent. It's just a mimicking of intelligence. It's a mimicking of memory. It's a mimicking of uh, decision-making or mimicking of creativity. That does not hold ground anymore. It is uh, very difficult to sustain that in the presence of so much evidence now of the presence of high-performing artificial intelligence machines. However, one thing that's very clear which Sankhya and Advaita Vedanta point out that these computers, artificial intelligence, they do not have first-person experience. It is only the Jivatma, wherever there is sentient, even without uh, memory or without um, intelligence, like a mouse, without much memory, without much intelligence, it still can suffer pain and pleasure. Anyway, so that's my rant. But here, only the only point we are taking away from it is you can't say the two which have entered within us, it is um, intellect and uh, the individual consciousness because the intellect cannot experience anything. And the mantra says both are experiencing pain and pleasure. Um, then another reason it says is that why you can't say it is supreme soul that is Paramatma, infinite consciousness, Brahman and individual. is So is that what is being referred to as the two here? Well, there's a problem with that view also, because though the individual, I, the individual can experience and am experiencing the results of my karma, but aren't we taught that the infinite pure consciousness, existence consciousness, please, does not experience the pain and pleasure of, the, uh, of karma. Uh, so then that is also, you can't say those two are the ones who are experiencing it. So anyway, this is the problems. Now, the way the sutras work is, so what is the meaning of this? What, how will we interpret it? A prima facie view is presented. Uh, an opponent's view is presented first. And then the Vedanta view will be our view, but the conclusion will be presented. So what is the opponent's view? The opponent comes and says that, look, the two here means what you are experiencing right now. You are experiencing mind and consciousness. You are a conscious being and you have an intellect. And jivatma, buddhi. These are the two terms. And I will show that it fits the mantra. How? Well, the first objection was, you then uh, sentient being, jivatma, you can experience pleasure and pain because you're conscious. But the intellect cannot experience pleasure and pain by itself because it's not a conscious entity. How does it experience apart from you pleasure and pain? Uh, here, Shankaracharya uses uh, an old Indian example, chatrina nyaya, which literally translates as, there go the people with the umbrella. The people with the umbrella. Now, what does that mean? It's a little quaint. But you have to imagine, suddenly you see a group of like pretty important people, you know, walking this. Uh, one man is in front with somebody holding an umbrella over his head. And remember in those days, um, umbrellas with big parasols, you know, I'm sure they were made of bamboo or something. So one man is going with the umbrella over his head and he has a retinue of people accompanying him. And people see that and they say, there go the people with the umbrella. There go the literally umbrella people, the umbrella people, chatrina, the ones with the umbrella, the umbrella people are going there. 
What does it mean? Only one person has an umbrella, but everybody else is, they're all taken as a group and called the umbrella people, Chatrinaha, in plural. Similarly, so what, how do we apply it here? Although actually consciousness is giving rise to first person experience, but since mind, intellect are always together with it, we, are, we can include it. Just like people with the umbrella, only one umbrella, but everybody else is said to be a person with the umbrella because they are in the group. Since consciousness is accompanied by the intellect, so the intellect also, you can say, it is something that is experiencing the pleasure and pain. So it is no harm in saying the two are experiencing pleasure and pain. They're drinking the results of past karma. Or um, you might say that the two are experiencing pleasure and pain because one of them, consciousness, that is pure consciousness, is making uh, the other one uh, experience. If one makes the other one experience, you can still say both are experiencing. Like, um, you know, one person is cooking, but you are the one who is like the head chef or something. So you're not doing anything yourself. There's somebody else who's doing the cooking. But people will say, you are cooking. Uh, other guy is cooking, but he's cooking because you have set him to do the cooking. Similarly, uh, consciousness, pure consciousness by itself may not uh, be directly experiencing pleasure and pain, but because of it, it is reflected in the, in the, in the mind and um, the reflected consciousness is experiencing pleasure and pain. Or the other way around, the sentient being in the mind, you the individual, you are the one who is experiencing pleasure and pain, but because of your presence, and you are using the intellect and the mind to experience pleasure and pain. So you can say the intellect and mind is uh, experiencing pleasure and pain. The mind is suffering. The mind is happy. You can say that. There's nothing wrong in that. Um, you know, the whole doubt is how can an insentient thing like the mind, the intellect, experience anything? So... Uh, one example is given here is saying there's nothing wrong and figuratively as if so the an example is the fuel the wood cooks now who is cooking the cook is cooking but is burning the fuel burning the wood so there's an in indirect way of referring to it as that the wood is cooking the fire uh, the rice you are cooking the rice but you have lit the wood and you put the pan and the rice and that and but indirectly you can say the wood is cooking the rice the wood is burning and it's cooking the rice in the same way you the consciousness you are experiencing pleasure and pain but you can say the mind the intellect is experiencing pleasure and pain because you are using it as an instrument so there's no harm in saying that within you are these two consciousness individual consciousness and mind together they're experiencing pleasure and pain the two of them um, further, here is the argument. Why are you saying that the two means you, the individual being, and your intellect? It's because the, um, it is said, entered into the cavity of the heart or entered into the heart, guha, cave of the heart. Now, who has entered into the cave of the heart? What is here embodied? Individual consciousness and mind. Not the supreme consciousness. Supreme consciousness, in, uh, infinite existence consciousness, this is all pervading. Why are you saying it's embodied here in the, in the heart? So therefore, we, it must be individual consciousness and mind. The two things which are actually present in this body. It clearly says, entered into the cave. You see the argument here. Uh, then next. It says, experiencing the results. The mantra says, experiencing the results of karma. Good and bad karma are being experienced by it. Now, the Supreme Self, why would it be limited by the law of karma? And you know, we are I've often quoted to you, Swami Vivekananda saying, good, good, bad, bad, and none escape the law. Uh, but whosoever wears a form, wears the chain too. That means who, whoever is embodied, whosoever wears a form, whoever is embodied, just like this mantra says, wears the chain. Chain is past karma. Good and bad results are coming. And our life, we, we are experiencing it. Then Swami Vivekananda goes on to say in that poem, but far beyond name and form is Atman never free. No, thou art that sannyasi bold, say Om Tatsato. But far beyond is Atman ever free. 
here the uh, 1400 years ago the commentator says the opponent says aha that means the supreme self is ever free of karma and the mantra says you are experiencing the pleasure and pain of karma so that supreme self cannot be meant here paramatma is not meant here satchidananda brahma is not meant here it's only you the individual being plus your mind or your intellect that's meant here then again all these are arguments to show that it is you the individual being and intellect which is meant by two another argument chaya tapo light and darkness you are consciousness and your companion the intellect is non not conscious you are chit and the intellect is jada you are sentient and your body mind all the apparatus is insentient like light and darkness like light and shadow it matches what the mantra is talking about and so therefore we must say when the mantra says two have entered into the sacred space within this um, mind or the cave and they are experiencing the results of karma the two are you the individual sentient being the jivatma and your intellect or in general you can say intellect mind the whole inner instrument sounds convincing now comes the vedantin and says no you are totally wrong why it is actually um the in the you the individual being and the unlimited pure consciousness our real nature your apparent nature and your real nature these are the two which are meant here you what you know yourself to be and you what we are yama is trying to teach us what you truly are these are the two which are meant here how so we've got we have shown you a battery of objections you have to answer all of those questions well because first argument is that when it says two have entered whenever you have a grouping with number 2 10 50 then you're counting things of the same kind if i say go and count how many are there in the hall down nobody is there in the hall downstairs but suppose in person class is going on how many are there you'll go and count maybe 50 are there but you you meant 50 people you didn't count uh, uh, the kitten and the and the uh, you know uh, spiders or, or whatever you don't you don't count anything else you just count that the same kind of thing you're having a cup of coffee you say i want one more you want one more what everybody knows you want one more another cup of coffee you don't want something else so when the upanishad says two have entered they must be of the same nature and so the argument is the individual self and the supreme self the limited consciousness which you think yourself to be the individual consciousness and your real nature the infinite consciousness both are consciousness therefore you can say both you can't do that to something which is consciousness and and not consciousness and then put them together and say both you can't say individual consciousness and mind because they are of different nature this is a subtle argument but a simple argument then um he puts it very beautifully shankaracharya here what is after all going on here first of all catch catch hold of what you experience yourself as you ascertain i am a conscious being with a mind and intellect and senses and a body experiencing pleasure and pain the results of my past karma you know this yes right now yama will show you this conscious being its real nature is infinite consciousness ever free so these are the two he wants to talk about he is not interested in your physiology or your psychology is not interested in your brain and spine and um, kidney no so he is interested in you the consciousness and your ultimate nature as pure consciousness why is he talking about it as two ultimately it is one reality but for the purpose of teaching you have to start with what you experience yourself as and then show you your infinite nature that's why talking about two then the opponent says but um didn't we say that doesn't the mantra say if entered into this body how can the infinite enter into this body well he says there's no problem there because uh, uh, if the supreme self 
Paramatma is all pervading, then it must be here in this body also. It must be there in your mind also. And you need a particular place to experience it. So it is said to have entered into your mind and being beyond your mind also. In fact, as we have already seen, not only it is all pervading, in fact, all of space is appearing in pure consciousness, in, in consciousness. All of time is appearing in consciousness. So only when you accept space, then you say consciousness is all pervading. When you accept time, you say consciousness is eternal. But as a matter of fact, even time and space are appearances in consciousness. So uh, the um, point here is, there's no harm in saying supreme infinite consciousness has entered into the sacred space of your heart. Of course it has. It has entered everything. So it is there, there. And that's the place you will experience it. And then further he says, gives a series of quotations. Throughout the Upanishads, again and again, this very phrase is used. The Supreme Self having entered the cave of the heart. Taittiri Upanishads, I have often quoted. And Shankaracharya quotes here. Haven't you, don't you remember? Taittiri Upanishad says, Yo Vedan hitam guhayam paramebhyoman. Brahman is satyam jnanam anantam brahma. Brahman is infinite existence consciousness. Where is it? You have to realize it in the sacred space of your heart. So sacred space of your heart means in your mind, actually. So this is the phrase which is used often to point out Brahman. So there's no harm in saying that, that infinite Brahman is available in the sacred space within the cave of the heart. And cave of the heart here, Shankaracharya says, you can take the body as a temple and in which like the deity within a temple, um, consciousness is present in this body. Or you can actually take the mind itself as the cave of the heart. In the mind, consciousness is available. Then, so there is no contradiction in teaching about any place as suitable for the realization of the omnipresent Brahman. If it's an omnipresent thing, then in every place it is available. And then you realize it within yourself. Then, um, but what about the other objection? experiencing the results of karma. You, are you saying that the supreme Brahman experiences pleasure and pain, the results of karma, then it's no good. It has not escaped from the effects of karma. Uh, how do you get out of that one? It says two things experience results of karma. Individual. Now you are saying two things means individual self, which we agree, and the supreme self, Brahman, infinite existence, consciousness, bliss. And there he deftly plays the opponent back. He says, have you forgotten people with the umbrella? So the umbrella is on the head of the, the individual self and the supreme self tags along. You, the individual self is experiencing pleasure and pain and because the supreme self is, the individual self is ultimately nothing but the supreme self. Therefore, you can say in association, supreme self in association with appearing as the individual self seems to be experiencing pleasure and pain. No problem. Shankaracharya just says, have you forgotten the people with the umbrella? We can use that right here. Then... What about light and shade? If both are consciousness, how can you compare light and shade? The mantra says the two have entered into the sacred space of the heart and they are different like light and shade. And in our exp uh, explanation, consciousness, you the individual consciousness and mind, they're different because you are consciousness and the mind is not conscious. They're different like light and shade. But now you are saying supreme consciousness and individual consciousness, paramatma, Jivatma, how can they be different as light and darkness? And then the explanation is, it can be. The Paramatma is free of samsara. Uh, it is, uh, it has no, uh, it is not touched by uh, pleasure, pain. It's not touched by birth, rebirth. It does not, it's not subject to birth and death. And the individual self uh, suffers the results of past karma, subject to birth and death, goes through aging and experiences all of that. So, one is in samsara, samsari. The other one is asamsari, not samsari, not, not transmigrating in samsara. So, they are like light and darkness. Further, he says, the first one, individual self, is what we think ourselves in ignorance. We, the same one, we will realize I am that infinite self, unlimited consciousness in knowledge. So, in the state of ignorance, in the state of darkness, we think we are the individual self. In the state of light of, of uh, realization, we think we are the we realize we are the infinite self or infinite consciousness. So it's like light and shadow. That's done. 
Therefore, he says, consciousness identified with the intellect and consciousness which is infinite, these are the two who have entered into the cave of the heart. So this is the way they come to these discussions. And this is a, just a sort of summary of the discussions. I've given you less than one third of what Shankaracharya said in that discussion. Now we are back to the Upanishad. Where were we all this time? We were in the Brahma Sutras uh, discussing this very topic. What was the topic? Two have entered into the cave of the heart. Just that word two. Explain the two. What are the two? Because the Upanishad doesn't say clearly what are the two. What are the candidates for explanation? First candidate was you and your intellect. These are the two. The second candidate was you and your real nature. What you think yourself to be limited conscious being and your real nature is unlimited consciousness. Those are the two. What did we decide? We decided the second one. But what is, what is, in, what is within us? I apparently limited consciousness, limited by mind and intellect and all, but really the unlimited consciousness. Like Shankaracharya himself sings, Mano chittani naham. When I extract myself, disentangle myself from mind and intellect and ego and memory, then what do I find? Chidananda rupaha shivoham shivoham. I'm of the nature of unlimited consciousness. I'm of the nature of bliss. I'm of the nature of Shiva. I am Shiva. Those are the two, the Shiva and the Jiva who have entered into this, in this body-mind complex. That's the meaning of two. Then the rest of it is easy to interpret. Ritam pivanto, they drink the truth. The truth here is the truth of karma. Karma is inflexible, cannot be broken. But two things. First of all, practically, God is more powerful than karma. Who is God? Saguna Brahman, Ishwara. Karma and the results are given to us. Results of karma are given by Ishwara. So by the grace of Ishwara, uh, karma results can be attenuated. And um, you know you can tide over bad karma. That's not something Upanishad is saying. That's I'm just adding, bringing it from outside. But what the Upanishad says is, your real nature is beyond karma. Uh, you are actually not limited to karma. Now, they enjoy the results or suffer from the results of their own karma. Sukrita means Swayam Krita, done by oneself in past lives. And have entered Guham Pravishto, have entered the cave. What is the cave? You can take the body itself as the cave or you can take the mind as the cave. Chaya Tapo, they're like light and darkness. Um, one more point here I must point out. Later when we study the Mundaka Upanishad, there is the famous example of the two birds sitting on a tree. In the Mundaka Upanishad 3.1.1, which is the famous mantra, Dvasuparna Sayuja Sakaya Samanam Riksham Parishaswajate Tayoranya Pippalam Swadvati Anashna Nanyo Abhichakashiti. What does that mean? On a tree. What is the tree? Our body. On a tree, there are two birds of golden plumage. They're shining. What are the two birds? Consciousness. Among them, one is hopping around the tree and enjoying or experiencing the sweet and bitter fruits. Imagine one, one bird hopping around and pecking at different fruits. The other one is not consuming the fruits, is not tasting pain and pleasure, bitter, sweet and bitter. It is watching. Tayoranya abhijakashiti, anashnan, does not eat, watches. And we know what they are trying to tell us. There is only one, there are not two, but it seems to be two. First of all is I the individual being, and I'm experiencing the various results of karma. So I'm Vivekananda says, the lower bird, it tastes a bitter fruit and then gets a shock. And what is the meaning of this life? It's so terrible, it's so horrible. Then it looks up at the higher bird, which sits in glory and peace and serenity and says, I want to be like that. And it hops towards the higher bird. This is all Swami Vivekananda's commentary. Hops towards the higher bird. But then it gets distracted by a specially luscious, shining-looking fruit. So it sets aside the spiritual quest towards the higher bird. Then it hops laterally, a lateral movement, to, the, to that other fruit and pecks it. And it's very nice. So it forgets the higher bird. 
Then it takes out another fruit that's very nice. But then it comes to another fruit, which is especially bitter, gets a shock. Oh my God, what am I doing? I forgot my spiritual quest. That is the real purpose of life. This miserable thing, I've, I've started doing it again. So comes back to spiritual quest. I had stopped doing my meditation. I had stopped doing my devotional practices. I had stopped attending Vedanta classes. No, I must get back to it again. And so again, hops towards the higher bird. And so it goes on till it comes near the higher bird and sees for the first time it becomes real. The, the unlimited, perfect awareness, our real nature, call it Buddha nature, Atman, Brahman, whatever. And then amazingly it finds there's no lower bird. Always there was the higher bird alone. So this is the spiritual journey. And we will come across this mantra in the Mundaka Upanishad. But it creates a special problem for this mantra. Because there it's very clear. Two birds, one is eating the results of past karma, the other one is not. One is getting pain and pleasure, shocks, kicks and blows, the other one is not. But here, both are enjoying the pleasure and pain of the past uh, karma. How do you explain that? Then what, is, what are these two? It exactly means the same thing. But then you have to use interpretation like people with the umbrella. Chatrina yeah? Yanti. One umbrella. Only one is holding the umbrella. But on whose head is it? Okay. Then what else? Who speaks of this? Where are you getting this? All the Vedas speak of it. The Upanishads speak of it. Brahma Vido Vadanti. The knowers of Brahman. Those who have the rishis of the Upanishad, they speak of it. But also, those who are the ritualists, they speak of it. Only the rishis emphasize the Upanishads, Noors of Brahman emphasize the higher consciousness, pure consciousness, unlimited consciousness. And the ritualists emphasize the individual consciousness, which is getting the results of karma. The ritualists are all about karma. Do good karma, have a better life. Don't do good karma, then suffer. Get kicks and blows and terrible life. And so for a better life, do good karma and you, the lower, that lower consciousness, that individual consciousness, will get fewer bitter fruits and much better, much bigger harvest of sweet fruits. That is the whole ritualistic approach. Instead of saying the ritualists, it uses two terms. Panchagnayaha, those who perform sacrifices of five fires. Or Trinachiketa, those who have performed the Nachiketa sacrifice. What is Nachiketa sacrifice? We talked about it earlier. That great sacrifice, Vedic ritual, which was taught by Yama to Nachiketa. And um, he said you perform it thrice in your lifetime. Basically, ritualists. Those ritualists who perform these things, they also mention the same theory of the, the two consciousnesses. Advaita will say actually not two consciousnesses, as if two. What you see yourself as right now and what I'm going to show you what you really are. Why five fires? Just as a note, there are two interpretations. Why five fires? One is every traditional Vedic ritualist used to have these fires at home. One, they were, I'll just rattle off the names of the fires. The fires had their names. In which, the, in which fires the rituals were performed. Garhapatya Agni, the household fire. Ahavaniya Agni, Agni means fire. Dakshina Agni, Sabhya Agni, and Avasatya Agni. So these are the five fires which are mentioned here. Or it could refer to in Chandogya Upanishad, in Biradharnik Upanishad, um, there are this um, idea of five sacrifices or five meditations which are called five fires. Panjagni Vidya. Those are not actual rituals. Those are meditations. Not, not pertinent to us, but just to explain the term five fires. What do you mean five fires? So a particular kind of meditation found in Chandogya Upanishad and Vyadarnak Upanishad is called the five fires meditation. And there the five fires are not fires actually. One fire is Swarga, heaven. Another fire is um, the Mega, the atmosphere, the clouds. Another fire is Prithivi, the earth. Another fire is uh, Purusha, the, the male. Another fire is Nari, the female, the five fires. And you meditate on that in a particular way. That was one kind of technique taught in the Upanishads. Anyway, so these are all techniques performed by um, either actual rituals or meditations performed by the ritualists. They speak of these two within us experiencing karma. 
and the knowers of Brahman, of course, speak of these two within us experiencing karma. This is the meaning of the mantra. You may be thinking, too much detail. I don't need so much information. But just to give you an example of how these things work, you know, the background, if you lift the hood, open the box, what's inside it? How do we come to these interpretations? I could have just said, there are two within us experiencing the results of karma, pleasure and pain, uh, infinite consciousness. Through the mind and body, it appears as the individual consciousness. Those are the two. But how do you know they are the two? And how do you match all the things which are said in the mantra? Light and darkness, experiencing pleasure and pain, entered into this one body. How? I was just reading the life of Swami um, Tyagi Shanandaji, who was a very great Swami of our order many, many decades ago in Bangalore, uh, Bengaluru now. Uh, in, so in his, he used to be known for this, his voluminous, his, his tremendous knowledge, vast erudition. So his classes would go on and on with endless information about every verse. There, there are descriptions of the uh, monks. They all used to sit on the floor. Even when I joined the order, we used to sit on the floor and uh, attend classes from the pundits. So they would sit on the floor and take notes. And the Swami would either walk around, he had a cane. He would walk around and uh, you know, talk, or he would sit with his eyes closed on the floor and talk. And he would go on and on and on. There's, an, uh, uh, there's a description of how one class, a Sunday class, is supposed to start at four and end at five. It started at four. And five came and went, and then six came and went, and seven came and went. It, he ended at eight o'clock in the night, four hours. And one monk says in his later years that I still remember, we used to be nervous wrecks at the end of the class, because if you tried to pay attention, there would be so much information, so much depth in his classes. Once, in a Gita class, he started explaining the term yajna, the sacrifice, yajna. And it's a very important term in the Vedas. So the whole class went in explaining that one word. So these were Sunday classes. Next Sunday when they came for the Gita class, the whole class again went for explaining that yajna. And so did the third Sunday and then the fourth Sunday. And every Sunday thereafter for two whole years, one word. Literally one word. He went on and on. Um, somebody asked a question, Swami, some question. And the Swami said, well, you wait. When we come to the last chapter of the Gita, 18 chapter, it will be clear to you. And that gentleman said, uh, many lifetimes hence, I presume. <laughs> so what I did today, it would be insignificant compared to what that Swami was doing. Yeah. Um, I've, I've met some who used to attend his classes and then they all speak about his enormous erudition and extraordinarily simple lifestyle. It was funny also, the story he tells, uh, he knew Mahatma Gandhi. So once Mahatma Gandhi had come near the ashram and this Swami, Tyagishanji, went to meet him. And, and Tyagishanji, if you, we have a few photographs of in black and white photographs, you can see he has a long white beard and long flowing white hair. So he goes to meet Mahatma Gandhi and an Austrian lady had come. She was a well-known uh, journalist, writer, painter. She wanted to interview Mahatma Gandhi. But when Mahatma Gandhi was speaking, this lady kept on interrupting him. Uh, so Mahatma Gandhi, at one point, he chuckled and he caught hold of the nose of that lady and said, listen to me. You are not listening. Look at him. And he pointed to the monk, Tyagishanji. See how he's listening. Then that lady looked at the monk, Tyagishanji, and she really liked his long hair and uh, beard and said, can I do a portrait of you, Swami? And I'll come to the ashram tomorrow and we sit for a portrait. So she went to the ashram the next day. And then she couldn't recognize the Swami because he had shaved off that magnificent beard and all the hair. He knew that was what had attracted her. And she lost all interest in making the portrait after that. Anyway, these are stories I was just reading yesterday. I shared it with you. Good. Let's now quickly look at the comments. Shravani says, is this reference to two, similar to the two birds analogy in Mundok? Exactly. As we... And she raises the pertinent question. In this verse, do both enjoy the fruits of work or only one of the two enjoys? See, this is the problem. If you see the Munda, she has got it exactly. The Mundaka Upanishad verse says, uh, mantra says, um, uh, that why do we say mantra instead of verse? Verse is all right for Gita. 
they're shloka. Words mean shloka. Mantra means the Upanishads and Vedas, they are mantras. You don't say verse there. So, two enjoy or one enjoys. And that was the whole issue which we discussed today. Parul says, Swamiji in Hindi, we say, Man shant hai, man uh, vichilit hai. What is this man? Man means the mind. Mind, intellect, anything that changes. So, in the mind we see series of thoughts, series of ideas, series of memories. So these are components of the mind. Uh, mind is a general term. And uh, so in the technical term in Vedanta would be antakkarana, inner instrument. And that changes continuously. You, the witness consciousness, you do not change. Good. So that was... This was a more of a traditional kind of Vedanta class. <laughs> Only in traditional class, we would go through the Sanskrit and then uh, teach. But basically, this is what they would do in a traditional class. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tat Sat Shri Ramakrishna Rupa Namastu